This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EM Basic Podcast. Today I'll be just doing a short introduction, because this episode is the world premiere of the first contribution to the EM Basic Project. Dr. Brian Cohn from Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, has done an excellent episode on monoarticular arthritis, and I am really pumped to be able to host it. Dr. Cohn is also one of the authors of the EMJ Club podcast, which reviews the literature of common emergency medicine topics in a journal club format. It's a relatively new podcast that his residency started doing a few months ago, and it's a great review of the current literature on a wide range of topics, from asymptomatic hypertension to cardiac ultrasound during cardiac arrest resuscitation. I'll put a link to the podcast in the show notes. One quick note for the international listeners out there, Dr. Cohn's pace is a little quick from what you are probably used to on the podcast, but don't worry. He does an excellent review at the end to make sure that you get all the important topics. I still have to mention that this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. With that said, here's Dr. Brian Cohn on monoarticular arthritis. Hello out there in EM Basic Land. This is Brian Cohn from the EMJ Club podcast at emjclub.com. Steve Carroll's been putting out these great emergency medicine podcasts for the last few years. I think it's a great thing that he's been doing, and he's given us an opportunity to contribute through the EM Basic Project. And I thought that I would do my part and give you a little talk today. So I'm going to talk about monoarticular arthritis. So we'll start with a little anatomy review. Now there are three classes of joints. There are the synarthroses, which are basically the suture lines in the skull, amphiarthroses, which are fibrocartilaginous unions, such as the pubic symphysis and the lower third of the sacroiliac joint. Then there are diarthroses, or the movable joints. The most common type of diarthrosis is the synovial joint. Essentially, two ends of subchondral bone are almost completely covered by an articular cartilage and surrounded by a joint capsule, ligaments, tendons, and muscles, which are lined with the synovial membrane. This synovial membrane secretes a lubricant that eases movement of the cartilaginous surfaces against one another. These synovial joints are the ones we most often think of. The shoulders, the elbows, the wrists, the knees, the ankles, the hips. And these are the ones we're primarily going to talk about when we talk about monoarticular arthritis. Now the first step when approaching a patient who comes in complaining of joint pain is to determine if the pain is articular or periarticular. Articular inflammation will vary depending on the cause It typically produces generalized joint pain, warmth, swelling, and tenderness, which will be exacerbated by active and passive range of motion. Periarticular pain, swelling, and tenderness tends to be more focal, and pain is brought on usually by particular movements rather than by any movement of the joint itself. Now, once you've determined that the problem is articular, you next have to determine if the arthritis is monoarticular or polyarticular. We're going to talk today specifically about monoarticular arthritis. The presence of systemic signs and symptoms, such as fever and rash, may be a clue to the etiology, so a good physical exam and a good review of systems is important in anyone complaining of joint pain. Each involved joint should be examined for warmth, effusion, deformity, range of motion, pain on active loading, pain with passive and active movement, and tenderness, either generalized or localized, articular or periarticular. So the way I think of it, acute monoarticular arthritis can be typically divided into one of three groups. Degenerative, crystalline, and infectious, and we'll go through each of those separately. Inflammatory arthritis, things like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus arthritis, tend to be polyarticular, and we aren't really going to talk about that today. 
We'll start with degenerative arthritis, aka osteoarthritis. This is the most common form of arthritis in adults and is more prominent in the elderly. It's caused by a combination of mechanical, biochemical, and genetic factors, and risk factors include obesity and prior injury. It's the reason all those meathead jocks that used to pick on me in high school are now hobbling around like a bunch of old decrepit people. Degenerative arthritis typically presents as chronic pain that worsens with activity and improves with rest. Recent trauma, heavy activity, and change in the weather can lead to an acute exacerbation and hence a visit to the emergency department. Systemic symptoms are typically absent. Physical exam may reveal some swelling around the joint and some effusion, but there shouldn't be any warmth or redness. Crepitus may be palpable on both passive and active range of motion. That's where the whole creaking joints thing comes from. In the hands, osteophytic outgrowths can occur at the joints. Now, at the PIP, the proximal interphalangeal joints, these are called Bouchard's nodes. And at the distal interphalangeal joints, the DIPs, these are Heberdine's nodes. X-rays will classically show asymmetric joint space narrowing, osteophyte formation, and subchondral cysts. In terms of treatment, for an acute exacerbation, I like to give them NSAIDs. Opiates can be used when the pain is real severe. They need temporary rest, elevation, and ice. They can consider an intraarticular steroid injection. I usually let this be done by the primary care doctor or an orthopod in the office rather than doing it in the emergency department, but I think that's going to depend a lot on your clinical setting. For the chronic condition, muscle strengthening, weight loss, and then Tylenol is the first-line drug for chronic arthritis. Now we'll move on to the crystalline arthropathies. We'll start with gout. Gout is more common in middle-aged men and postmenopausal women. Risk factors include obesity, hypertension, diabetes, thiazide diuretic use, cyclosporins, alcohol, and fructose consumption. Now the biz buzz here is thiazides and ethanol are common inciting factors in gout. Thiazides reduce uric acid clearance from the kidneys and hence raise the levels of uric acid in the bloodstream. The mechanism for alcohol causing gout is unclear. Acute gouty arthritis is caused by acute precipitation of uric acid crystals within the synovial fluid. These crystals are ingested by polymorphonuclear cells and result in the release of cytokines and an inflammatory reaction in the synovium. Hyperuricemia is often the result of either systemic overproduction or underexcretion from the kidneys. Systemic overproduction is rare and typically results from inborn errors of metabolism and myeloproliferative diseases. Usually the cause that we're looking at is under-excretion. Uric acid is a product of purine metabolism, so consumption of products high in purine like meat, shellfish, beer, and legumes will predispose to gout, as do physiologic stressors like illness, trauma, and surgery in someone who has a history of gout. Most gouty attacks will involve a single joint, but it can be polyarticular. It often presents with significant erythema, warmth, tenderness, and pain with any attempt at passive movement in the affected joint. This makes distinguishing gout from septic arthritis extremely difficult. Over time, tophi can develop. Now, these are monosodium urate crystals that form in the muscles, tendon, or bursi. Common sites include the olecranon bursa, Achilles tendon, and the ulnar surface of the forearm. And these tophi can even break through the skin where they'll present as chalky, whitish, yellowish masses. The most commonly involved joints in acute gouty arthritis are the great toe metatarsophalangeal joint, the MTP. This is that podagra that you hear about, which occurs in up to 75% of attacks. 
Podagra, by the way, was the offspring of Aphrodite and Dionysus in Greek mythology. She's referred to in Rosens as a bad-tempered virgin who attacked victims after they overindulged in dietary or sexual excess. Next to that, the knee, the ankle, and the tarsal joints are common sites for acute gouty attack. Now, in terms of the workup for gout, definitive diagnosis is going to be made by arthrocentesis, the presence of monosodium urate crystals, which are needle-shaped, negatively birefringent crystals under the polarizing microscope, is pathognomonic of an acute gouty attack. Now, keep in mind that the presence of urate crystals does not completely rule out septic arthritis. Septic arthritis and gout can occur concomitantly. So if there's clinical concern for a septic joint, you may still need to consult your orthopedist. Some people still send serum uric acid levels to try and diagnose an acute gouty arthritis. And I'm here to tell you that that's probably not the best idea. An evidence-based review from the Journal of Family Practice in 2011 found six articles in which 11% to 49% of patients with acute gout had normal serum uric acid levels. In addition, many patients without acute gout both those with a history of gout and those without a history of gout will have elevated levels of uric acid. One study of 3,700 patients with asymptomatic hyperuricemia with levels between 7 and 7.9 milligrams per deciliter found that gout developed in only 12% over a 14-year period. And based on data from the normative aging study, the prevalence of asymptomatic hyperuricemia in the general population in the U.S. was estimated at 2 to 3%. So, elevated uric acid levels are often present in asymptomatic patients, and they're often normal in patients with acute gouty attack. In terms of treatment, your primary options are going to be NSAIDs, so endomethacin, ibuprofen, naproxen, or colchicine. These remain the mainstay of therapy. NSAIDs, of course, are contraindicated in chronic kidney disease, active peptic ulcer disease, or NSAID intolerance. Colchicine is most useful when started in the first 12 to 24 hours of the attack, and is actually fairly useless if started more than 72 hours after onset. In that case, it's probably best to go with an NSAID. In terms of dosing for colchicine, what we used to do was give 1.2 milligrams immediately, followed by 0.6 milligrams every hour until the patient either got better or started having intractable abdominal cramps, vomiting, and diarrhea. By this point, of course, they'd forgotten about the gout, so we called it a win. Based on some pretty good studies, the FDA now recommends 1.2 milligrams immediately, then 0.6 milligrams in one hour, and then you're done. They found that cure rates with this dosing regimen are just as good as cure rates with the previous dosing regimen. Now, in those who can't tolerate NSAIDs or colchicine, oral or parenteral glucocorticoids are considered second line. So prednisone, Medrol, dose pack, whichever you choose. Now let's move on to pseudogout, also called calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. The pathophysiology is poorly understood, but seems to involve excess chondrocyte pyrophosphate production. It's associated with hemochromatosis, hypothyroidism, hyperparathyroidism, amyloidosis, hypomagnesemia, Wilson's disease, inflammatory osteoarthritis, and especially aging. It is often asymptomatic and manifests by chondrocalcinosis on radiographs. Chondrocalcinosis is calcification of the articular cartilage or fibrocartilage or ligaments. The clinical presentation is very similar to gout and can be difficult to distinguish on physical exam alone. Again, radiographs may show chondrocalcinosis, but this doesn't exclude the possibility of gout as the two conditions can coexist. Diagnosis, as with gout, is made by arthrocentesis. Here we see rhomboidal, weakly positive birefringent crystals. As with gout, the presence of crystals does not exclude the possibility of a concomitant septic arthritis. 
Treatment is similar to gout. NSAIDs are probably the first line, as colchicine may not be as effective in pseudogout. And again, glucocorticoids for those who can't tolerate NSAIDs. Now we get to move on to the good stuff, septic arthritis. I divide septic arthritis into three groups. Pediatric septic arthritis, adult non-gonococcal septic arthritis, and gonococcal septic arthritis. Septic arthritis has bimodal peaks in young children and then again in adults over the age of 55. There are three routes by which bacteria can get into the joint space. The first is hematogenous spread, and this owes largely to the fact that the synodium is such a highly vascular structure. Then there's spread from adjacent infection, and then there's direct inoculation, so penetrating injuries or iatrogenic infection. Bacterial infection within the synovium leads to inflammation and the release of proteolytic enzymes which cause destruction of the articular cartilage and can lead to disabling morbidity if not diagnosed and treated early. We'll start with pediatric septic arthritis. In kids, hematogenous spread is by far the most common route of infection for septic arthritis. 80 to 90 percent of infections occur in the lower extremities in children, most commonly the knees and hips. 90 percent of cases are monoarticular, Polyarticular infections can happen, and they're a little more common in neonates. In kids, elevated pressure within the joint can compromise vascular flow to the adjacent bone, leading to ischemic injury. This is a particular concern in the hip, where avascular necrosis can occur. This is more common in children less than one year of age. Pain is going to be the most common presenting complaint in the older child, but in the younger preverbal child, septic arthritis can manifest in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's seen only as a limp or abnormal gait. Sometimes decreased range of motion or resisted movement on exam is the only clinical sign. Inability to bear weight is sometimes seen. There is something called pseudoparalysis of the affected limb, whereby the child simply refuses to move the limb because of pain. It's also important to keep septic arthritis in mind anytime you're dealing with a child with fever or sepsis. The presenting complaint may even be something as nonspecific as irritability. Irritability with diaper changes in an infant may be a sign of a septic hip. The hip will be held in abduction and external rotation to minimize intraarticular pressure, and movement of the hip to change that poopy diapy may cause significant pain and irritability. Erythema, swelling, and warmth of the joint are often noted, although Fleischer and Ludwig note, and I quote, swelling may be less obvious in the pudgy infant, end quote. I didn't realize pudgy was a medical term. Fevers may also be present, but can be absent in up to a third of cases. So if you've got a kid and you suspect septic arthritis, you're probably going to start with labs and x-rays. While we often want to rely on peripheral white blood cell counts for infection, it's important to note that the peripheral white cell count is less than 15,000 in about half of pediatric septic arthritis cases. ESR and CRP are frequently elevated, though again, these are not definitive tests. Plain radiographs are usually obtained to rule out fractures or other bony abnormalities that may mimic septic arthritis. An effusion may be seen on the x-ray that raises the clinical concern for septic arthritis. Ultrasound may be helpful in identifying a joint infusion, especially in the hip, where it can be difficult to tell if an effusion is present on plain films. And when the hip joint is involved, ultrasound may also be helpful in aspirating fluid. Joint aspiration is going to be the mainstay of diagnosis here. It's important to send the synovial fluid for cell count and differential gram stain, and cultures, as this is the only means of determining if the joint fluid is infected. Joint fluid cultures, unfortunately, are only positive in about 50 to 80 percent of cases of pediatric septic arthritis. Blood cultures, on the other hand, are positive in 15 to 46 percent of cases. 
but they are positive in many cases in which synovial cultures are negative, and so it's recommended that when pediatric septic arthritis is suspected, that blood cultures be sent. The synovial white blood cell count is often used to make the diagnosis of septic arthritis in the emergency department. While a synovial white blood cell count greater than 100,000 is highly consistent with septic arthritis, most cases are going to be less than that level. There's no specific cutoff for septic arthritis, so a lot of times you have to use your clinical concern in addition to the lab testing. The mainstay of treatment in children is parenteral antibiotics. These should be targeted at the most likely organisms. Staph aureus is the most commonly isolated bacteria in all age groups. In neonates, those less than two months, gram-negative coliforms and group B beta-hemolytic streptococcus are the next most common bacteria isolated. Vancomycin and cefotaxime is recommended in this age group. For those in the two-month to five-year age group, group A streptococcus and streptococcus pneumoniae are the next most common bacteria. Clindamycin or vancomycin, depending on your antibiotic resistance patterns, are going to be your antibiotic of choice. For those over five years, typically we're dealing with Staph aureus and group A streptococcus. Again, clindamycin or vancomycin, depending on your antibiotic resistance. In adolescents, in addition to Staph aureus and group A strep, we now also have to worry about Neisseria gonorrhea, gonococcal septic arthritis, which we're going to talk more about later. Again, clindamycin or vancomycin, but now you've got to add on ceftriaxone to cover for the gonorrhea. Now, Neisseria gonorrhea, while common in sexually active adolescents, can also be seen in neonates. It will be covered by the cefotaxime that we're giving to cover those gram-negative coliforms. It's important to note that patients with sickle cell disease are particularly susceptible to salmonella, so they should also receive a third-generation cephalosporin. Surgical intervention is usually required in cases of pediatric septic arthritis of the hip. Other joints are often managed with parenteral antibiotics alone, but surgical intervention may be needed when there's no improvement after several days. All of these patients are going to require orthopedic consultation and admission to the hospital. We'll now move on to adult non-gonococcal septic arthritis. Risk factors here include IV drug abuse, HIV, diabetes, immunocompromise, valvular abnormalities, chronic arthritis, so rheumatoid, crystalline, or osteoarthritis, and prosthetic joint replacements. And that's a big one, and we're going to talk about that separately later. In adults, septic arthritis can occur in conjunctions with other forms of arthritis, such as rheumatoid arthritis, gout, and pseudogout. So the presence of these does not exclude the possibility of a septic joint. Septic arthritis in IV drug abusers typically involves the axial skeleton, so the intervertebral joints, the costovertebral joints, the sternoclavicular, and SI joints. But it can involve the extremities as well. Septic arthritis occurs most commonly in adults by hematogenous spread, though direct inoculation and contiguous spread from bone or surrounding soft tissue infections can occur. From a microbiology standpoint, predominantly gram-positive organisms are going to be causative, 75 to 90 percent of cases, and Staph aureus is by far the most common organism. Some gram-negative bacilli and a handful of anaerobes, mycobacteria, and fungal organisms can be involved. In patients with IV drug abuse, Pseudomonas and Staph aureus are the most common organisms. Classically, adult patients with septic arthritis have fever, joint pain, swelling, redness, warmth, and pain with any range of motion. Unfortunately, not all patients have all of these signs. There was a recent systematic review and meta-analysis in academic emergency medicine by Chris Carpenter as part of the evidence-based diagnostic series. They looked at the diagnostic accuracy of a wide range of historical elements, physical exam findings, and laboratory values in the diagnosis of septic arthritis. 
they found that most historical risk factors in isolation are poorly sensitive, such as age, diabetes, and HIV. However, the combination of a prosthetic joint with an overlying skin infection had a high specificity, 98.4%, resulting in a high positive likelihood ratio, i.e., if a patient has this combination, it is highly likely that they have a septic joint. Many of the classic physical exam findings also have poor sensitivity in detecting septic arthritis. The absence individually of swelling, tenderness, heat, redness, fever, and pain on axial load performed poorly in terms of ruling out septic arthritis. However, pain with motion was 100% sensitive, i.e., if a patient has no pain with movement of the affected joint, it's extremely unlikely that they have a septic arthritis. Serum white blood cell count, sed rate, and CRP also performed poorly for the most part. Synovial polymorphonuclear percent, glucose, protein, and LDH all also performed poorly. Now, in terms of the synovial white blood cell count, which is the thing that we probably look at the most closely, according to Roberts and Hedges, quote, a white blood cell count greater than 50,000 is highly suggestive of a septic joint. However, the table in that book lists the range of synovial white blood cell counts for bacterial arthritis as anywhere from 2,000 to greater than 50,000, so a pretty wide range. Systematic review reflects this wide range as well. The synovial white blood cell count performs well at the extremes, but not for most values. A synovial white blood cell count less than 1,700 had a negative likelihood ratio of 0.07. So if the white blood cell count is less than 1,700, it's a pretty good chance that the patient does not have a septic arthritis. A synovial white blood cell count of greater than 100,000 had a positive likelihood ratio of 13.2. So if the synovial white blood cell counts over 100,000, there's a very good chance that the patient does in fact have a septic arthritis. In between these values, the synovial white blood cell count wasn't as great. For a white blood cell count greater than 25,000, the negative likelihood ratio was only 0.35. So a white blood cell count less than 25,000 does not do a great job of excluding septic arthritis. Similarly, a synovial white blood cell count greater than 50,000 had a positive likelihood ratio of 4.7, though also doesn't do a great job at ruling in septic arthritis. The presence of crystals in the fluid also doesn't rule out concomitant septic arthritis, which can happen. One study demonstrated 1.5% of patients with crystals present on fluid analysis also had a septic arthritis, so still something to keep in mind. Now, synovial lactate was mentioned in the systematic review and something you're going to start hearing a lot about, but it's not yet ready for routine use, and I won't spend any time on it. If you're interested, go to the EMJ Club website and check out the podcast we did on synovial lactate. So how do you make a diagnosis of septic arthritis? Well, it's a lot of judgment call based on your history, physical exam findings, and the synovial lab values. No single test in isolation is going to rule in or rule out disease. Once you've made the diagnosis, treatment classically involves surgical arthrotomy with irrigation and debridement combined with antibiotic administration. More recently, in non-gonococcal native joint septic arthritis, so not prosthetic septic arthritis, Serial joint aspiration with antibiotics has been proposed and a handful of observational trials have shown promising results. There's a randomized control trial underway at Emory to assess this further and hopefully will give us a little better idea. For now, consultation with orthopedics is the goal of the ED physician, with most patients undergoing surgical arthrotomy. It's important to note that many orthopedists prefer to withhold antibiotics until surgery so that more accurate synovial cultures can be sent at that time. I would argue if there's going to be a long delay, it's probably best to go ahead and start parenteral antibiotics. 
Prosthetic joint infections are a little bit of a different beast. There are three types of prosthetic joint infection. There's the early type, which is caused by bacteria acquired during implantation. Staph aureus is by far the most common organism with rising rates of MRSA seen. Gram-negative bacilli, anaerobes, and mixed infections can be seen as well. Then there's delayed infection, which is also caused by bacteria acquired during implantation, but is more indolent in presentation due to less virulent organisms. Typically, these are coagulase-negative staph species and enterococci. Then there's the late joint infection. Typically, these are caused by hematogenous spread, just like native joint infections. So staph aureus, beta-hemolytic strep, and enterobacteriaceae are the most common organisms in this case. Several issues make this distinct from non-prosthetic septic arthritis or native joint arthritis, including decreased antibiotic bioavailability and impaired host immune response in the non-native joint. Much lower synovial white blood cell counts are needed to make the diagnosis compared to a native joint septic arthritis. A synovial white cell count of 1,700 is often sufficient to make the diagnosis for most orthopedists. Treatment varies, but often requires hardware removal, replacement arthroplasty, antibiotic spacers or beads, and IV antibiotics. Anytime you're considering a prosthetic joint septic arthritis, it's important to proceed in consultation with the orthopedist particularly the orthopedist that put the joint in, if at all possible. Finally, we're going to talk about gonococcal septic arthritis, or cooties in your joints. This remains the most common form of joint infection in sexually active adults and adolescents, despite declining rates of gonococcal infections overall. Risk factors, of course, include unprotected sexual intercourse. There is a 4 to 1 female to male predominance, it is less likely to result in joint destruction and long-term disability than non-gonococcal septic arthritis. Systemic gonococcal infections occur in about 0.5 to 3% of all infected patients, and there are two overlapping musculoskeletal syndromes associated with systemic gonococcal infection. The first is disseminated gonococcal infection, also known as the arthritis dermatitis syndrome, which presents with bacteremia, diffuse migratory arthralgias, tenosynovitis, and skin lesions. These patients don't typically have purulent arthritis, although some overlap can occur. The second musculoskeletal syndrome is the localized purulent septic arthritis, which is more often oligoarticular than monoarticular. The most commonly affected joints are the knee, ankle, and wrist. Diagnosis of gonococcal arthritis can be difficult as synovial and blood cultures may be positive in only 10 to 50 percent of cases. Cervical, urethral, rectal, and pharyngeal cultures may be positive in up to 75% of cases and should be obtained when the diagnosis is suspected. The synovial white blood cell count is typically lower than in non-gonococcal septic arthritis, again making diagnosis difficult. Treatment involves parenteral IV third-generation cephalosporins, most commonly ceftriaxone, though ceftazoxime and cefotaxime are reasonable choices as well. Unlike non-gonococcal adult septic arthritis, Surgical irrigation and debridement is rarely needed. Well, that's everything, so let's recap. Degenerative arthritis, or osteoarthritis, is a relatively benign condition that causes typically chronic pain with occasional acute exacerbations. Treatment in the acute phase involves rest, NSAIDs, and ice, and the chronic phase involves muscle strengthening, weight loss, and Tylenol. Gout is caused by monosodium urate crystals. These are those needle-shaped, negatively birefringent crystals. The presence of these crystals do not rule out septic arthritis entirely. First-line treatment for gout is NSAIDs, classically endomethacin, or colchicine. Second-line treatment is steroids. 
Pseudogout is also known as calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. It is diagnosed by rhomboidal, weakly positive birefringent crystals. First-line treatment is NSAIDs, and second-line treatment is steroids. Pediatric septic arthritis. The presenting complaint may be nonspecific or vague, particularly in younger children. Limp, fever, sepsis, or even something as vague as irritability may be the only presenting symptom. Arthrocentesis is the mainstay of diagnosis, and treatment depends on the age of the child and the likely cause of organisms. Adult non-gonococcal septic arthritis. History and physical exam findings are notoriously insensitive and nonspecific, although cellulitis overlying a prosthetic joint makes septic arthritis highly likely, while the absence of pain on joint movement makes the diagnosis unlikely. The synovial white blood cell count is most commonly used to make the diagnosis, but can be difficult to interpret. A synovial white cell count less than 1,700 makes septic arthritis unlikely, while a synovial white count greater than 100,000 makes the diagnosis very likely. All other values require interpretation in the context of the whole clinical picture. Don't let the orthopod tell you it's not septic arthritis based on a modestly elevated synovial white blood cell count if your clinical suspicion is high. When septic arthritis is suspected in a prosthetic joint, it's best to call the orthopedist early. Gonococcal septic arthritis, when suspected, swathe the genitals, throat, anus, and pharynx, and treatment is with antibiotics, and surgery is almost never warranted. All right, guys, well, that's about all I've got. Thanks for listening in. I hope you enjoyed this little talk on monoarticular arthritis. I hope you'll come visit me at the emjclub.com website, and I hope you'll check out more of EM Basics' great podcasts. And Steve, thanks for letting me participate. I've really enjoyed it.